this guy reached out to me who'd seen my work and said, come work with me in London on this project. That seemed like a terrible idea because I had no idea who he was. And so I did that. The group of people who I met through that job turned out to be really inspirational in my early work. We just happened to stumble into the right kind of idea at the right time and it got super big. We built this messaging platform that we'd been running the whole business on. We thought this is a great way of collaborating. Maybe other teams would like to work in the same way. That product became Slack. Today's guest is Cal Henderson, who is best known as the co-founder and chief technology officer of Slack. We record this podcast at the beginning of June, and with Slack's IPO planned to be later this month, it's a pretty memorable month for Cal. As you will shortly hear, Cal is, along with Marmite, one of Britain's finest exports, although it's probably fair to say that he divides people much less. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. Oh, I'd hope so. Yeah, like peanut butter. I think I'm slightly better than like a mold that people eat for <laughs> some reason. Mm, slightly. Well, we've got the next hour to find out if that's true. Now residing in San Francisco, where Slack is headquartered, Cal grew up in the humble county of Bedfordshire. And after a computer science degree from Birmingham City University, he moved to the US in 2003, which sounds like quite a good move in fairness. Uh, supposedly, he was able to get a job after hacking into the email system and telling its future bosses that he could help them fix the problems they were having. It was at Ludacorp that Kel met Stuart Butterfield and the pair went on to set up photo sharing website Flickr. Flickr was eventually acquired in 2005 by Yahoo for more than £19 million, that's roughly Yahoo's value now, giving Cal Henderson huge acclaim at the ripe old age of 24. Not one to retire early, Cal teamed up again with Stuart Butterfield to found Slack in 2009. So firstly, Cal, welcome to the podcast and how was that for research? Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah there's a, a few things I got wrong. I mean, it's, Yahoo it's, really 18 million. It's broadly correct. Um, okay. Yahoo doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> uh, yeah, deep, deep, deep. Oh, actually, to start. I, I just realised that you said Slack was in 2000. I know I wrote this, so it's my fault. Slack yeah. was in 2009, but it wasn't actually, was it? No, in 2009 we started the company that became Slack, but we spent the first four years um, trying to make video game. Yeah, well, we're going to ruin the twist. Oh, uh, you okay. know, yeah. Uh, note to listener: stay listening for the. Twist. Um, right. Office or gym, Cal? Well, definitely office these days. Since I, I had kids a few years ago, I stopped having any time to be able to go to the gym. So it's really just work, kids, and occasional sleep. Although now I've shifted to um, getting exercise by walking to and from work. So I spend a huge amount of time walking. City or countryside? Definitely city. I mean, I grew up in the countryside. I grew up on a farm, and I am completely over the countryside. Tea or coffee? Definitely coffee. And in fact, I uh, moved into an apartment in San Francisco and lived there for seven years because it was next door to my favorite coffee shop. So like very strong brand loyalty. Fair. And that little Starbucks has done very well. <laughs> um, you're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things. And uh, let's just assume the family's there already. What are they? Do I need to supply my own food and water? You have to figure this out yourself, pal. And is there internet? Or like, is there power? Says, yeah, there's power. this is going to be tough. I there's mean, power? nobody's actually asked these prerequisites. They seem like very yes, reasonable um, questions that other people should have there asked. There is power, and let's say there is, is Wi-Fi. <laughs> That's tough then. So I already have the basic necessities. There's yeah. like water. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, inverted. Got, you know, inverted, yeah. You've got the San Francisco hierarchy of needs. You've got Wi-Fi. You're okay. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to need my phone, probably. Yeah. So assuming that I can plug that in and have Wi-Fi. So Assume basic away. needs met. Like, uh, I'm not really sure after that point. Interesting. Right. Well, you're just going with food and Wi-Fi. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my family was already there. That was yeah, awesome. that's true. I didn't want to make you, you know, have to choose, basically. Um, early bird or late owl? Late owl? You mean night owl? 
Yeah, so I, I usually write these, but I don't have a chance. But a late owl. So that, say that again. We'll, we'll cut out. No, we're keeping it in. We all want to know what a late owl is. I'm, Carl, is I, don't, describe yourself? I don't really know what a late owl is, but I describe myself as more of a night owl. Definitely. <laughs> good. good uh, you know, know, I have to wake up early out. these days because I have I have young kids, but I definitely get more work done late than early. Okay, and iPhone or Android? Um, iPhone. Not for any particular reason other than brand loyalty. They're about the same these days, but, you know, I'm stuck in that technology hole. Fair enough. And most inspirational person in the world to you? There's not really a person I find most inspirational, but I think I've taken a lot of inspiration from the creative internet community of the late 90s, especially here in London. And I think the work that a lot of people did then inspired really my my whole career. And in fact, we're here on Old Compton Street. We used to meet um, the bloggers in the late 90s and early 2000s. We used to meet in the pub at the end of the road here on Wardour Street, which is now the Duke of Wellington, used to be the Rat and Parrot. And that's where we met up and had blog meets and talked about the internet, all 10 and 15 of us. Um, What's your least favourite part of your job? And please, God, don't say there's none, because that would just make us depressed for our own own sake. It's just so wonderful. Yeah, Uh, of course. No, I think as the company has grown and we're, you know, over 1,500 employees today, there was a point at which I stopped knowing everybody in the company. There are more people who start every week now than we're in the company for the first year. And I think that point at which I just didn't know all the people I worked with was has been really difficult. Okay. So we're going to take you back in time now, if you don't mind. We're going to step into the time machine that my lovely assistant has prepared for us. How do you get from a small village in uh, North Bedfordshire? It's very specific. Well, because I'm from Bedfordshire. Yeah, I know. So I know. I, I'm from the south of Bedfordshire. Yeah, so where, whereabouts? I'm, I'm near like a bit near, of rivalry. I'm actually near Luton. So. Oh, I've, I've, I've been past Luton. <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah, good. I'm glad you've gone past it. But uh, yeah. Um, so how, how do you go from there to running one of the hottest startups in Silicon Valley? What's, what's, the, what's the, journey, the early journey from Bedfordshire? I fell in love with computers super young. And, but then when the kind of internet came around in the mid-90s, I really saw that as a way which I could do creative work and get it in front of other people. So like fell in love with the web and ended up working for a publishing company here in London. And I got that job actually through the UK bloggers mailing list, of which a few of us were on in the early 2000s. And this guy reached out to me who'd seen my work and said, come work with me in London on this project. And uh, that seemed like a terrible idea because I had no idea who he was. And so, so I did that. And the group of people who I met through that job turned out to be kind of really inspirational in my early work. What was your, I mean, you've gone straight into uh, being, you know, around this area in Old Compton Street. But what was your early childhood like? You, um, you know, you mentioned you grew up on a farm. Yeah. Talk to us about that. I mean, any inspiration, like, you know, desperate to get out of there or actually helped you connect with certain problems? He's laughing. I'm guessing definitely not. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I definitely preferred computers to animals. Okay. Um, from the first time I got a computer, I was like, this is, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. This, yeah. is, this is what I want to do for work. Have you had any pets ever since? Oh, I haven't had pet for a long time. I'm like not anti-pet, but I'm definitely anti-menagerie. Got you. You're pro-laptop, precious laptop that you can stroke, but possibly not dog that's a bit more hassle. Exactly. Right. So you say you've always had an interest in technology. What actually sparked that? Was there, you know, did anyone like buy you a computer when you were younger or, you know, there must be something there? Yeah, so I have a, a, a cousin who's a couple of years older than me, and he, he got a computer when I was really young, when I was like five or six, and he was like doing some programming on it. He's like, this is brilliant. This is just so much fun and such an interesting creative outlet, and I got hooked from that age. 
So when people think of uh, hacks or life hacks, I guess, they often think of shortcuts. But did you hack your way into a job? Like, you know, this is like the, the, the intro that I gave and, you know, you said some of it was true. But let's let's go through the more unusual um, job application. Yeah, so I was, I was working for a company in London and I saw um, this project on the internet, this game that Stuart and his company were building. And I'd already been, been aware of his work because uh, a couple of years before... Stuart had organized this uh, online contest called the 5K Contest, which was about creating internet demos or content in a very small amount of space in in five kilobytes or less. And it was a really interesting, inspirational kind of project that many people took part in. And so I'd already kind of known of his work. And then when he started working on this game project, um, and I think in 2001, called Game Never Ending, I saw the project and it was just like, it was amazing. It was really the first... First time I'd seen any kind of online game on the internet when multiple people played together. And it, was, it wasn't it was like a kind of combat, kill people, score points kind of game. It was a social space. It was exploratory and world building. And it was both a really interesting experience and a very interesting use of technology. And I saw it and thought, I'm not sure that I thought this would be the future or anything like that would ever work out. But I saw it and thought, I want to work on this. This is amazing. But it took me a couple of years. So, you know, where, where does the hacking come into play there? So I was um, running a fan website for this game for for maybe about a year, and I wanted to understand more about what they were building, what they were working on, how their internals worked. And I noticed their internal mailing lists were hadn't changed the default admin password, so I just kind of slipped in there and uh, started observing what the company was working on. And with that, you were able to sort of demonstrate that you would be better from the inside helping them solve some of these problems. Is that the PC way of putting it? You know, I think that sounds like a a sensible story, but honestly, I can't remember at this point how it worked out. I'm not sure if I ended up getting a job working there before I revealed that I joined the mailing list or not. Uh, It's now more than a decade ago, um, so I'm lost in the midst of time. Water under the bridge then. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I don't think there's any hard feelings. Okay, and your first impression of Stuart when you started working together? Well, for the first three months that we worked together, uh, we didn't meet in person because I was in London, he was in Vancouver, Eric, another co-founder, was in New York, and George was in Seattle, so nobody was in the same space. We built Flickr, the photo-sharing website, for the first three months we'd never met each other. Then when we came to launch it in um, at a conference in San Diego, flew there for the first time and met the people I'd been working with. And I was like, oh, God, I hope he's fine in real life because I've only ever talked to him on Skype late at night. Maybe he's a jerk. And maybe this, like, I can go get a real job. I hope Um, I haven't been catfished and he's really a Victoria's Secret model because that would drive me mad. That would have been terrible, you know, such a disappointment. (laughs) Um, But he turned out to be, like, this normal Canadian dude. So it worked out pretty good. And then how did actually, because Flickr, you said, kind of was a spinoff from what you were actually working on. Yeah, so they're originally working on on this game, Game Never Ending, was which was what I really wanted to work on. But at the time I joined the company, they'd basically run out of money, and so Flickr was an idea to quickly build something on the side, which would generate enough revenue to be able to fund building the game. And so it was this quick project. We built it, launched it, and then it turned out to be unexpectedly successful. So we thought it was going to be a small side project. It really started taking off, and so we realized we had to focus on on Flickr and, and not build this game out. We focused on Flickr for kind of the next year. And uh, after a year and a lot of growth, um, we ended up being acquired by Yahoo. And for those who perhaps are a slightly younger audience... Yahoo is a business in the, <laughs> in, 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 in the internet arena. I thought we also better explain what Flickr is as well. <laughs> I think Flickr is probably almost better known. 
So Flickr was really the first uh, photo sharing website that let you upload photos and share them with other people, which today in 2019, that sounds completely insane. Like, of course, you could do that on the internet. But back when we launched it in, um, in 2004, there was no other mechanism where you could take a photo, put it on a web page and show other people. So we also launched it at a time when people started carrying cell phones with cameras for the very first time. So people had a digital camera everywhere with them and were taking more and more photos. But there was nothing you could do with them. You could get them printed like uh, kind of old camera film photos. Or you could have them printed on like a mug or a mouse pad, which for some reason was super big at the time. But there was nothing you could do with them on the internet. So we just happened to stumble into the right kind of idea at the right time and it got super big. How long did you have to stay at Yahoo for, or have to, or want to? I mean, you know, you tell your own side <laughs> of it. I won't put the words in your mouth. That's okay. So I was uh, super invested in, in Flickr as a product. And so I stayed at Yahoo for almost four years after the acquisition. Uh, so there were a certain set of features and changes that I wanted to see through before we, uh, before we moved on. Really, I, I left because it was time for the same group of people to get back together and do the next thing. And at the time I left Yahoo, we were trying to make the game again. It wasn't, didn't have the same name. It wasn't the same technology. It wasn't really the same game. But in spirit, it was the same idea. And, um, you know, you might have touched on it, but talk to us about Tiny Spec. So Tiny Spec was the, was the name of the company um, that we built after Flickr. And that was originally going to be the name of the game as well. And there was a whole backstory. And then we dropped that after a little while. And the game itself was called Glitch which what, what I'm sure many of you to, are familiar with. Absolutely. But what was the backstory to Tiny Spec before we go any further? There are a few different backstories with that name, but one of them was that the game was going to take place on a tiny moat of dust, or maybe many of them. That sounded good, but then it was kind of hard to do that in the execution. So it ended up being called Glitch, which also didn't fit with the backstory, which was you're in a world which was inside the minds of 11 giants who are dreaming the world. Yeah. Uh, there's not really like... <laughs> just, the story just so wasn't we didn't, built out. We didn't, yeah, we didn't edit oh, anything is. out of that. That was just our reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to comprehend what that actually looked like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the visuals that we ended up producing were really, really good and uh, are still kind of available today on, on glitchthegame.com. Um, <laughs> we, we produced so much really good kind of artwork and content over those four years, but ultimately didn't manage to make a game that could be commercially viable. Um, I think by the end of the four years, we had something that was quite fun, and we had thousands of players who were enjoying it. We just needed to have hundreds of thousands of players who were enjoying it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. 
Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So it's four years in. Um, how much money has been spent? Where does that money come from? Is some of it yours? Is it some of it investors? What's the what's the current situation? And, you know, take us through some of those conversations that you and the team actually had about what to do with what was left. We'd raised venture capital um, from a couple of different investors. And because of the success we'd had with Flickr, it was easy slash possible for us to raise, for, to raise outside capital. But by the end of those four years, when we were thinking about shutting the shutting the game or the company down we realized that it wasn't we'd spent quite a lot of money and it was never going to be a business successful enough to pay back the amount we'd invested in it what is quite a lot we had raised around 17 million dollars and spent most of that okay so quite a quite a lot of money even yeah. in today's money yeah and our investors were were strong supporters of us they had um so at that point it was excel and andreessen horowitz and they had both invested because they believed in the team rather than they, because they believed in the particular project. And while that was kind of the – when we started was the era of the rise of Zynga and a lot of investment in kind of social online games, online games weren't a focus for either of our investors. So they were really just investing in the team. Got you. So they were basically open-minded to what the product was. They're just kind of like, well, you guys will figure it out. Yeah, basically. And so when it came time to to shut the game down and we said, oh, you know, we have some money left. Do you want it back? They were quite unanimous in saying, like, no, you have a little bit of money left. See what else you can do with it. Okay, interesting. So out of that, you didn't have to go back and raise any more money from that point. You just used what was remaining, which was three, four million, something like that. So, I mean, the big thing was at that point, we were somewhere between 45 and 50 people and we had to lay most of them off because we had a lot of artists, animators, sound, level design, and we knew whatever we did next wasn't going to be a game. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't have a wouldn't have a space for those people. So we, we went from the full company down to eight. So that was a really like difficult and harrowing decision because it wasn't just shutting down the project, which was kind of like our, our passion company. It was laying off the people we'd been working with. And in some cases, we'd ask them to move with their families across the country to come work on our project. So that was just a really difficult decision to make. And I think that meant that we delayed making it longer than we should have because it was just such a, a tough decision. So that was really difficult to do. So we, after we decided to make that decision and announced it internally, we spent some time making sure that we could find jobs for all those folks, that we could get them hired at other game studios and other companies. We wound down the the game because it was an online game. We actually had to like do a bunch of work to, to turn it off and say goodbye to our players and stuff like that. And so as we were as we were shutting it down, we knew that we wanted to keep working together. We came up with a whole bunch of different ideas about what we should work on. And 
in remembering it, it seemed like we spent months debating like 50 different things we could do. But when I go back and look at the record, it was a space of about four days in which we came up with a bunch of ideas and then decided what we'd do. Would you have a process for it? That's uh, that's really a spoiler for where this story is going. Well, I don't want to do that, do I? Yeah. So Although I we feel were... like we're getting there, so <laughs> I'll, I'll let you riff. <laughs> Thank you. So we're trying to figure out what we want to do next, and, and some of the ideas were really bad, like maybe we should start an online bank because everyone hates their banks and it must be so easy, and banks literally make money, so how could that go wrong? Um, which sounds like the pitch for everything we've wanted to do was how could you possibly fail? Um, turns out failing is fairly straightforward. But we realized that whatever we did next, um, we would want to keep working together in the same way. And we'd built this set of tools when we were building the game to allow us to work together between our different offices. So we were in New York, San Francisco, and Vancouver. And the set of tools that we'd built, this messaging platform that we'd been running the whole business on, we thought this is a great way of collaborating. Maybe other teams would like to work in the same way. And so that product became Slack. I see. Okay, so what you're saying is at some point you'd had the genius foresight as a team to uh, build a plan B without even realising it. Had you had, had your uh, actual experience been that there was nothing out there that would actually, you know, facilitate this internal tool? So what we started with was um, IRC, Internet Relay Chat, which has been around since, uh, since the late 80s, but has never been super popular because it's super confusing to use and lacks tons of useful features. So we adopted it right at the beginning of the company when we were building the game, but we quickly ran up against all of the kind of shortcomings of the tech. And so we built a bunch of features on top to make it more useful, to make it more usable by like our artists and animators who weren't necessarily like super nerds. And over the course of the four years when we were building the game, we just built lots and lots of tooling and layers on top of it to make it a really useful system. And we didn't explicitly go out with the intention of turning it into a system that would be really good useful and rich it just kind of accreted over time so it'd be like we have a problem one day oh i'll go and add something to the to the system that we're using to make it easier to work and so by the end of the company all of the kind of business process that we did was flowing through this tool so an artist finishes a piece of work and it needs to get approved and handed over to an animator oh we have a flow for that or we want to know when somebody signs up for the game or purchases something in the in-game store or when a server crashes or when there's a new piece of code or a new build or something like that. So everything ended up running through this platform. By the time we shut it down, it was the thing that ran the entire business. Is that is that where you kind of originally had the the channels versus uh, DMs as well? Yeah, channels are a, are an IRC concept back from the late eighties, but people didn't know about them. Right. So early Slack. How many users are we talking about in the first three months? We started like a private alpha. Um, so after we started building building the product, I think it took about two months before we started using it ourselves. And that was very early. Like it was super janky, but we we're like, let's move the business onto it. It'll force us to fix all the things that matter really quickly. But then after that, we started onboarding Alpha customers. And they were companies like us in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, who we had friends working there. Right. So it's like, go and basically beg our friends, please try this thing. I know we just failed at one project, but definitely trust us with all of your internal communications because <laughs> that'll work out. And I think it's um, doubly difficult because you didn't just have to convince somebody to try it. You had to convince somebody to convince their team to try it. Totally. And so that was definitely an uphill battle. And there's like a over the course of a couple of months, we recruited a few of our friends' companies to try it out and gone in on the alpha test. I think our first... Our first real external company using it was a company called Audio. Oh, yes, rest in peace. Yeah, they were uh, an American Spotify, yeah. American Spotify competitor who unfortunately didn't work out. I think so, yeah. So Audio were were our very first kind of 
beta customer, and they gave us a ton of really useful feedback of stuff that we just didn't think about because we were such a small company. Like they had four people called Matt, and in Slack there was no way to differentiate between multiple people called Matt. Mm. So you know we fixed a lot of early bugs um, when they were testing with us, and then. I think it was in the late summer we we went into uh, into a beta where we told people what we were working on, and I think on the first day we had eight thousand companies sign up to try Slack. Wow! Which was at that the time huge. that was just incredible. It's yeah. like wow, there's a there was a lot of buzz around it. And, and how, like how why 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 did eight thousand companies suddenly? Like we must have had some effective marketing like tactics to get there. It's not just like magic that that many companies would be open to it. It's because we were very effective at PR that we right. got a lot of good press. And part of that was because a very early adopting industry of Slack was the media. And right. because newsrooms were using Slack, it, may, it kept it very top of mind. So they talked about Slack a lot. And when they talked about Slack, a lot of people heard about it. But I think one of the other aspects is that because we were building a piece of workplace software in the kind of style of a piece of consumer software, we were building something that people love to use. And so... They told their friends about it, which is not something that usually happens in the workplace. You don't use your expense reporting software and think, wow, that was so good that I'm actually going to talk about it with my friends outside of the office. But that happened with Slack, and we had really big word-of-mouth growth. Do you ever get criticized is the wrong word, but basically my own experience with Slack is um, I ended up banning myself from it for large periods of the day because I found it too fun. And I don't have great self-control, and integrating Giphy was the death of me. Um, and I'm obsessed with yeah, cats. Uh, and it's difficult. Dangerous. Like, I couldn't help myself but send cat gifts all the bloody time. And I'm the boss. I'm supposed to be <laughs> managing productivity. So how do you manage people like myself who just have no self-control when they need to? You know, I think that there's, there's a general danger with... Uh, Technology changes over the last decade, especially with mobile, which has meant that it's very easy for people to be always in a semi-working state, like you're never fully connected. And it's difficult to kind of like mentally enforce that work-life balance and work-life separation. And I think that we've seen historically whenever new technology trends come into the workplace, that it takes some time for people to kind of understand their relationship with it and how it should work. This was the case with email 30, 40 years ago. People were like, oh, I'm receiving a lot of memos now. I don't like this. And more recently with, with cell phones in general and their relationship to the workplace. And so I think when new technology comes in, it takes some time to figure out what the what the right balance is there. And while Slack enables like a lot of transparency and communication within your organization, there's there's supposed to be a purpose to that. So I think we've provided a lot of features to allow people to control mm. their, you know, their interaction on Slack, whether that's do not disturb times or like I don't want to be notified when I'm out of the office or custom status to say like I'm focusing or I'm in a meeting right now or I'm traveling, things like that. I was uh, the person that bought emoji to Slack because I've been an emoji fan for a long time. And I think that that ended up being an important aspect of the product because it was saying that. While it's a workplace communication tool, the idea of play isn't antithetical to work. And the idea that you're, you know, the the changing um, relationship between employees and the workplace of people wanting to be more themselves in the workplace and express the culture of, express themselves as individuals and the culture of their workplace. And I think Emoji ended up being a really rich way to do that. So you mentioned that obviously you've got more people joining every week than you had in the first year now. And you've maintained the role of CTO Stuart, so CEO. Firstly, how has your role evolved in that time? And have you ever had any pressure to relinquish that at all? 
So my role has evolved really significantly because right at the beginning, I spent all day writing code and I was, you know, I'm historically an engineer and, and that's what I do. But as the company has grown, my role has uh, really changed more and more. And I think one of the toughest things to learn and to kind of part with was the idea that I should be constantly working myself out of a job and delegating everything that I do. And as an engineer and like I love structure in my life, that was really difficult. Like I had a routine, this is what I do at work. And that that was difficult to change. But I think that my role now is very enjoyable in a very different way. So I have much higher leverage on my time to not be writing code myself. And definitely when I was young, I thought that I'd be programming for for the whole of my career. Now I spend nearly all of my time talking to people, which is a very different uh, set of skills, but also very rewarding in a different way. I think while the majority of our leadership team we're not there at the very beginning of Slack. You know, we've kind of we've grown it over time with a lot of expertise from other consumer companies or other classic enterprise software companies. So we have a really, really great team now. In the same way that, you know, learning to code is a skill and becoming brilliant at it is a skill, you know, it's not talent, you know, you work really hard and you practice daily to become a CTO and then a great CTO of a company, you know, uh, the size of Slack. Communication is a skill and something you have to learn as well. So have you had a lot of training, you know, coaches, people come in and actually help you understand this is how you level up in that way, because that's just not a given, I guess, for uh, someone who's been coding for so long. Yeah, I think when when I started out, it was much like when I started out coding. It's a lot of uh, self-taught. So actually, I've just batted it and learned from repetitive failure. But um, more recently, I've been, you know, having a lot more coaching and outside help and reading books about it and stuff yeah. like that. I guess repetitive failure on communication would not be a great place to be at the CTO level right now. Yeah, and you know, as a as a company grows grows quickly, there's a lot of opportunity for change and learning, and it, you know, it's been a been a kind of crazy ride over the last few years. What has been your toughest day um, at Slack? So not um, over the whole journey, because I would imagine that was certainly um, you know letting go of people that you loved, but at actual Slack from day one there. God, that's a great question. I think it's been that as as we've grown and had more and more people using Slack and relying on it kind of every minute of the day, that there's a massively increased pressure for Slack to always be working perfectly. And it's a like the responsibility just grows over time. So any time that Slack is not functioning and delivering service to our customers is a pretty bad time for me and my organization. Okay, fine. So it's not, not, not as bad as the Twitter fail whales that used to uh, go around and, uh, you know, every time Twitter was down. Luckily, we haven't been plagued by anything anything as bad as that kind of era of Twitter. Okay. <laughs> the uh, you know actually, as you say, like growing your your team as you are now. Do you still, if if there is an issue, does it still get to you in terms of you know we're in a basement room right now with very little phone signal? Like, you know, if Slack goes down, is it not going to go up for another like hour until until you finish this interview? Well, luckily, I'm not personally involved in the recovery of those things. And also, you know, I've turned my phone off as to not interfere with the signals down here. Good, so very I'm, I mean, I'm sure sure you all did that act, too. Uh, a class act interviewer. Mm, let me just yeah, do that now. Airplane mode all round. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very involved in the details, but it's, uh, you know, luckily I have a very competent team who are responding to those issues 24-7. Oh, I would hope so. Okay, look, we asked you the worst day. Uh, what about the best day? What's been the best best moment? Um, obviously, hopefully it is the day you... Well, actually, I don't know. Do you, what, what are your feelings around uh, around IPOing? Obviously, when this comes out, it will have already happened, but you can only look to the future now. Is it, Are you plagued with how to actually emotionally respond with that? I mean, it's a it's a big milestone, but it's not a destination. You know, it's a it's a stop on the way. And 
the growth that we've seen over the last few years has been tremendous, and we just like want that to continue to continue like providing that service to our customers. And so, I think it's hard to pull out a particular best day. Obviously, this podcast recording is we, obviously we, probably the highlight know. of my life. Yeah, we know. That's why we didn't say it. Yeah, you goes, got it goes, all over goes your face. Without, goes without saying. <laughs> it's yeah. just the look on your face as you walked in in wonder. What about 31st of uh, October on Halloween when uh, your colleagues all dress up as uh, Cal Henderson? Can we talk about that for a moment? Oh, so that's super weird. I kind of dress the same way every day. And a few years back on Halloween, for some reason, the entire company dressed up as me and then had continued that as tradition each year. It's kind of creepy. The entire company? Everyone? In all teams? Hundreds of people across all the different offices around the world. Oh, that's fantastic. It takes organisation. Yeah, and a level of dedication which is honestly misguided. (laughs) (laughs) But that is the definition of good culture, in my opinion. I mean, I don't know if they're being forced to do it by some unseen <laughs> unseen taskmaster, but uh, it's, it's... Is it really Stuart? It is, You're it like, it's good, Stuart, and he sent a memo around to everyone but you. It's basically a private Slack channel in Slack... You're the only one that's not in it. There, each year, there has been a private channel to which everyone in the company but me is invited, and then I get invited the day after to see all of the organisation uh, that went into it. Is there not some weird like irony where you're obviously also the only person with authority to hack into that channel and see what they're saying? <laughs> well, luckily, it's set up so that we can't break into other people's channels because okay, uh, their good. information turns out to be quite quite private and secret. Correct answer. Always, always test. Always test. Okay, what does a typical day look like for you? Obviously not in London, but you know you're walking through foggy San Francisco in your uh, shorts and your. What, what about when it rains? You still wear shorts? Well, I mean, the last few years in San Francisco, it hasn't really rained. We've had like a, an extended drought and very little moisture. So, okay. I mean, the planet's dying. So, uh, don't have to have an umbrella. Yeah, it's very true. Better listen the to the end of this podcast before that happens. Anyway, so all right, typical day. You wake up at. I wake up at about six thirty and uh, and get my elder son ready for school. How old is he? Coming up on five. Okay. Yeah, so he goes to preschool right now. So get him ready, maybe depending on the day of the week, drive him to school. Um, walk into work, get coffee on the way at the How same... How long is your walk? These days, about 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. Go to the same coffee shop I've been going to for 14 years every day. Yeah, we've talked about Starbucks already, mate. <laughs> you know, it's just a very unique Starbucks. <laughs> it's obviously not Starbucks. I, I get into the office and that's when kind of meetings start. And I spend most of my day talking to people on my team, whether that's one-on-ones with uh, with my direct team or group meetings or all-hands presentations. or. And you leave at? I leave the office at 5 o'clock, yep. get home, walk or take the bus, get home and spend time with my family, have dinner, put the kids to bed, then do some more work. Great. Four years ago, same question. What was your typical day like? Well, God, four years ago, I had a I had a less than one year old, yeah, so true. my life was just a disaster. Just a disaster, but also a, a new baby startup as well. A, a startup and a baby, and I just moved house at the same time as well. So it was like a great year for uh, for doing everything at once. And what, and my what, wife started the company the same year. What was that like, actually? Just give us genuinely an idea of what it's like to start a company, have a young child, and move house all in the same year. Like, What I, was a typical day like for you then? I honestly wouldn't recommend doing it all at the same time. But the company was a lot smaller. And so the, like, the pressure and the responsibility and the stress is a lot lower. You're struggling to try and turn it into a company that's going to be successful. But there's, there's less responsibility. And um, it's, you know, more freeing in a way. When you say uh, turning into companies more successful, what what is success to you? Like, is it at the end of this month you could find that uh, you 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 actually um, really see how, you know how uh, Slack does in the public markets? And 
and actually on paper you you're an incredibly wealthy person does that motivate you or is it something else no i think it's really the the impact that we're having on people's lives with slack as a product it's uh the strangest thing is like so i live in san francisco and i come visit london and like land at heathrow and i see people using slack in the airport mm. and then you know, I'm in town and I see people with Slack on their laptops or Slack on their yeah, phones. Yeah, that's got to be really cool. It's very cool. It's really having an impact, not just people using it, but it's changing the way they they work and interact with their colleagues. And that's incredibly rewarding. Mm. And I feel like we're really just at the beginning of the impact that we could have on the working world. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So what does the future of the working world look like? You know, I'm really fascinated, I think you are as well, with, you know, the, the WordPress structure, for example, automatic, you know, very distributed workforce, etc. How much of your workforce is distributed or is it, you know, very focused in San Francisco currently? We are, we're spread in quite a few offices around the world, but we are, we're not fully remote for a, like a company like WordPress. But I think increasingly we're seeing more and more companies that are either distributed over multiple offices or fully distributed or or, or a mix. And so I think that tools, communication uh, tools like Slack are become more and more important in bringing those people together, both in terms of the work that they're doing and allow them to collaborate on their work, but also in forming a cohesive culture and like transmitting that culture between locations and, and between employees. And so I think that tools like Slack are only going to become more valuable over the next decade. But what does it look like? So people are using more more of these tools like Slack. Um, obviously, we've always had email yet, that, and I'm genuinely a very big fan of email. I think it's very effective, but it doesn't solve a problem like a Slack or a, I mean, I'm not going to say Skype because it never works, but, you know, tools like that, Google Hangouts, whatever it might be, it doesn't solve that kind of same um, instant communication feeling that someone's really with you and responding. So what is what do you actually see as the future of uh, of the work and uh, of the workplace and how slack's position in it can really have an impact i think the technological details are always very difficult to pin down over that kind of time frame if you went back 10 years you wouldn't have been able to predict the kind of the role that the smartphone would play today and that's only that's only been 10 years and that's completely changed people's relationship to technology not just in the workplace but in in the consumer sphere as well so it's very hard to say what technology changes will happen over the te- next 10 years. You know, maybe we'll all be wearing VR headsets all the time on the blockchain, shouting at Siri or Google Home, but or maybe not. Maybe that, that stuff will all disappear. But I think what's definitely not going to change over the next 10 years is that more and more work is done by teams of people instead of individuals. And we spent the last kind of 20 years of technology advancement in the workplace making people much more productive individually. So there's been this explosion of software categories over the last 10 years. A lot of that is um, powered by the delivery of SaaS or, or, or cell phones in the workplace. And that's allowed people to get much more productive at the things they individually do. Like recruiters are much more productive at the recruiting they do. And engineers are more productive at writing code or testing it or deploying it. Finance uh, folks are more productive at financial planning and analysis. Marketers are more productive at building and running and delivering and measuring marketing campaigns. But a lot of that software hasn't focused on how we can make teams of people working together more effective. And I think that's such a huge unrealized upside for any size of organization that has employees. The idea that you don't just want teams of people, their abilities and output to be additive, but you want them to be multiplicative. The best teams that you work on are much more effective than those same people working alone. And I think tools to enable groups of people to work together are, are going to be huge over the next decade. Okay. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given by someone? 
No, I think it was a um, very good friend of mine when I was working in the UK said, yes, you should go work at this company that you've never heard of uh, all the way across the world and just take a big chance. Mm. And that was easy for me at the time because I was young and didn't have any commitments and, uh, and you know, I was like carefree. But it was great advice at the time. What advice would you give to your 15-year-old self? I mean, probably get a different haircut because it's just doing nothing for you. Yeah. <laughs> but it took you on a journey. You know? It's true. You know, I don't know if I'd want to f- change anything about my 15-year-old self. Well, for a start, if I, like, appeared through time, I'd be freaked the fuck out. Yeah, for sure. You know, like... A bit much, a bit heavy for you. Yeah, you can't deal with that when you're 15. But I think I'm so happy with how everything turned out that, you know, wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to change anything, you know, wouldn't butterfly effect. Yeah. Do you, would you ever reassure yourself to be like, actually, don't worry so much, it will work out? I didn't really worry much. I definitely didn't think it would turn out how it has, but also, you know, I like being an engineer. It's sort of the engineer's fairy tale story, realistically. But at the base of it, I think it's underappreciated just how much of a bold move it actually was to move. Um, you know, that's not that normal. As in, most people don't have the bravery to do it. And, you know, bravery is a ridiculous word, of course, when you think of, you know, troops and Marines or whatever. But it's insanely stressful to even think about applying for a new job when you talk to people, uh, rational people who are considering their next career move. For you to move to another country and take the opportunity, you know, full credit to you. It's an amazing thing. And it, it does, it plays into what you said earlier, which is, you know, a bit of luck, a bit of this. Well, there's a lot of purposeful decisions in creating your own future as well. Yeah, I think I was very lucky that I was in a position in my life where I had no responsibilities and I could just, like, move to Canada. I knew nothing about Canada when I moved there. I knew it was a country. I didn't, hadn't even heard of the city I was moving to. The city of Canada? Of, <laughs> it's, uh, it's called Vancouver. It's, uh, okay. it's a beautiful city. Yep, yep. I, I'm familiar with Vancouver. Right, okay. Last question. What do you believe you will be doing in 15 years from now? God, well, I hope I'm alive. I hope you're alive too. You're a nice guy. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. Yeah. You'll still be young as well, right? I mean, you'll be Stuart's age, so. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, how old are you? Oof. I'm going to be in my 50s. So, you know. That's all right. Yeah. I hope to still be doing what I'm doing. Like, I love creating stuff. And I think Slack is such such a great opportunity that. I've been at this company 10 years. I'd love to still be working here in 20 years. Well, you're probably, you know, this is a speculation, but you're set to make somewhere between $100, $500 million alone from an IPO. Do you think you're going to become an investor and you start wearing a gilet? (laughs) You know, I I do already have my Patagonia vest picked out. Thank God. They stopped doing them now. Uh, tech firms. Yeah, no, he's, yeah, yeah, they he's still doing, a founder. So they stopped doing custom the... embroidery ah, for tech firms. That was the deal, yeah. yeah. So you have to have it embroidered yourself. Uh, yeah. yeah, they'll sell it whilst you're still a founder. Then you can move into VC. It's yeah. fine. I really just like what I'm doing, so I want to just, just continue being focused on Slack. And it's uh, it's a pretty full-time job. Yeah, I can imagine. Cal, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Hope you've had fun. Yeah, you're welcome. I've It's been really enjoyable. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. 
There was, there was lots of points where if someone had come along to me and said, Nick, I can make all this go away, I probably would have taken them up on the offer. It all washed out in the end because Moonpig was a structurally very profitable company. A lot of people, when they sell their company, they feel a feeling of regret. Six months after that deal, I had no regrets about having sold it. You don't want to sell a company and look at it afterwards. If it sold for billions, I think I sold too early. Actually, it's done well enough that you're very happy with the deal, and not so well that I regret having sold it. That was a discussion from two of our Series 1 guests, both of whom I now get the pleasure to work with as my investors in my new company, Heights, Graham Hobson from Photobox and Nick Jenkins from Moonpig. We brought them together to discuss the untold story of how Nick Jenkins sold Moonpig to Photobox, what tactics each of them used in the negotiation, who did better out of it personally, and more to try to uncover the reality of what goes on in the boardroom behind closed doors when two proud founders try to negotiate the meaning of value. So tune in, or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.